HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Learn more at forevercheese.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking organization. Not mise en place or keeping your knives in a row, but labor organizing. If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in. As independent contractors, they can't directly tell people, you know, when or, or where to work, but by using sort of gamified nudges to push people, that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora. And Bobby Conforto, your mama. Hi, mama. How are you? I'm okay, Zaz. Little, still stuffed up. <laughs> I keep saying that every week. I mean, those spring allergies here on the East Coast are really tough. I have friends who live in Portland, and they talk about how on the West Coast, but particularly the Pacific Northwest, I think allergies are, like, even worse. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're difficult everywhere. Mm-hmm. I was with um, my best friend, one of my best friends, Becky, last night. And uh, she was having allergies, but it was triggering a cough. And we like had just sat down to have a drink at a bar and she's like coughing and coughing. <laughs> and like, you know, it's still COVID times and people don't yes. want to hear you cough. And like, yeah. you want to just hold up a sign and be like, it's just allergies. <laughs> um, but anyway, so today on the show, wow, what a, what a show today. Um, I feel so lucky that we get, to, I, I mean, I feel lucky when we talk to new people for a whole different set of reasons. But I feel lucky that we have people in our sphere, in our community, in our friend circles, and our families that are willing to come on and talk to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and today is one of those really special episodes where we get to talk to a very close member of our friend slash family, um, Mary Beth White. And Mary Beth comes on and we're, you know, the show today is really largely about funeral traditions, which I feel like this is a part one. Right. Like, yes, I agree. such a topic. I mean, I, you know, did a very brief kind of uh, summary of different funeral traditions from around the world, which I would love to really delve in more deeply with people yeah. from those cultures at some point. 
Um, but we, you know, we wanted to kind of start opening up the conversation about funerals. We had touched on funerals um, a couple of times with a couple of guests. We spoke right. about you know, with, Risa, with with Shiva, with Peter Shelsky, with Risa um, about her in-home funeral, which we reference in this show. Um, but it was really interesting to dive into it in this way with Mary Beth and uh, just a little bit about Mary Beth. She... Um, as she mentioned, started with hospice, but she has a really expansive career in women in women's health as a nurse practitioner and as someone who is just always learning about different kind of holistic things. And she's a brilliant person and a funny person and a serious person. And the, and one of the things I want to say about Mary Beth that the word that sticks out to me most, she's very thoughtful. She's very thoughtful mm-hmm. in the way she speaks and she's thoughtful in her mannerisms and she's just a thoughtful person and a lovely and, and, person. And very tender as well. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, when she mentioned, she referenced before her salons, I was always so impressed because salons is a concept, um, I don't know how many years ago they used to do it, but it was the intellectual community would gather in the living room and talk about subjects of meaning and depth. Mm. And she began a whole series of salons here. Mm. I, I don't know how many she had, but again, she was taking all the kinds of things that she was exploring and the the uh, curiosity that she has and the wisdom that she brings to it. And she would share that with people and have guests in her salons in a way she was doing what we're doing, but in her living room. Yeah. And I want to just mention to that point that there are so many ways in which folks do that in uh, ways that maybe are not, you know, defined as a salon, but just as, you know, even being in an actual salon, you know, like a bunch of women or, or men or people, uh, folks just around in a salon, like, chatting about life and about philosophy and but not necessarily under that pretense and it's just it's something that we kind of we all do in our own very special ways and and trying to unpack the meaning of life whether it's intentionally or unintentionally but we do it Mm -hmm. so constantly as people and um i think it's beautiful the way in which mary beth has done it and so intentionally Mm -hmm. and i also think it's beautiful to see you know folks hanging around in the park playing chess and doing that. So, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to all of you trying to unpack what it all means, power to you. It's Mm -hmm. it's an important feat. Um, Well, what a great episode, and I can't wait for everyone to listen to it. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous day today and has been a bunch of gorgeous days. And what has been a really beautiful spring here on the Northeast. And uh, seeing all the flowers and the warm weather and the, sunshine and it's been healing and I feel like there's little glimmers of hope kind of arising um in terms of life getting back to normal and I think it's feeling good over here and again we talk about this in many of our shows that it's just opening up to those moments life may be difficult for you now listening you know Mm. it's difficult for all of us in different ways at different times but it's okay to just appreciate that little moment of the sun shining or the flower growing or and then get back to feeling like shit if you need to. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah. You know what yep. I mean? Yep. So if you're feeling like shit, but you saw a beautiful flower, or you got warm from the sun today, that's that's okay. Both so, at the same time. Take care, without, everyone. Without further ado, uh, please enjoy our interview with Mary Beth White. Thanks.
So we are joined today by a very dear friend of our family and wonderful person, Mary Beth White. Mary Beth is a women's healthcare nurse practitioner, advanced practice holistic nurse, transpersonal uh, nurse coach, and former hospice nurse whose interest in non-traditional funerals and green burials was inspired by caring for her mom and family at the end of your mom's life. Mary Beth. That is quite a list of credentials. You are such an impressive person, and you are also within our community, I feel like, the healer who we all turn to whenever we have a question about anything, you know, whether it be, like, uh, gynecological health or just an ache or a pain or a heartache. You're such a wise healer and wonderful person. So welcome to the show, and it's our pleasure to have you. It's wonderful to be here. My pleasure. And it, it it does feel like family day, so... Yay for us. I know. And so your kid is my best friend and it happens to be their birthday today. So it is such a wonderful kind of happening that we all get to be together on happy Dan's birthday as we have dubbed it. Shout out to Dan. Dan. Happy birthday, Dan. We love you. (laughs) So today we are going to talk a bit about, this is a really special episode because we want to talk a bit about funerals. And I think each of us have something kind of different we want to say about funerals uh, that comes from our own place of interest and also expertise. And Mary Beth, like, we're so interested in your experience with, you know, death and dying and green funerals. Can you just tell us a little bit about, like, background on how you kind of got involved with that? Um, uh, it probably goes back to the fact that, and this is a... Uh, when I was first a nurse, I started in labor and delivery. So I was around birthing a lot. And I was very much involved with the movement to move birthing um, to birthing centers. I actually, for a short period of time, assisted a doctor who was doing home deliveries. And then I continued on my nursing career, became a nurse practitioner. And at, at some point, and my mom actually had a friend who was instrumental in bringing hospice to Long Island. Her name was B. Greenbaum. And um, my my mom took me to uh, a speaking event about it, and I was just really drawn to it. So I became, I I was working part-time as a women's healthcare nurse practitioner and part-time as a per diem hospice nurse for a period of about 15 months. And I had really amazing experiences, but I I also had two small kids and, and it just wasn't functional to stay in that role for too long. So I, um, I let that go, but always felt in my heart, I was going to go back to that work in some way or another. And then with, when my mom, um, was obviously, um, at the end of her days, for the last 11 days, I brought her into my home. I'm the oldest of six kids. And um, so we, and at that point, I pulled out all the things that I had learned about how to make it the best experience possible for all of us. Um, I even had a, have a friend who um, is a musical thanatologist, meaning somebody who uses music with the dying who came and did a ritual with a, a harp at the bedside. Um, and then when my mom actually died, um, I didn't call the, I didn't even call the hospice nurse. I didn't call the funeral parlor. Like I knew that we all wanted to be with her 
and and surround her and have our last goodbyes. And so when when I did, I, I asked the funeral home not to come for six hours. And in in the I came to learn that that's called a delayed pickup, which I didn't know anything about that. Right. But um, so my family all gathered and uh, we were sitting most it, it was she was in the den, which is next to the deck to go outside. And it was in June. And so most of my family was sitting outside on the patio. Um, we were eating a very traditional Irish meal of um, bagels and cream cheese and lox. <laughs> <laughs> and going in and, and each person would go in and sit with her for a little while. And, um, and then about an hour before the funeral people were to, to arrive, I gathered the women. There were about six of us and we bathed my mom's body we anointed it with her with oil. We combed her hair. We dressed her. We, you know, we we said our real goodbyes, and we had like blaring sacred music on, like Luciano Pavarotti singing Panas Angelicus. Wow! And it was just like I just got goosebumps just recalling how incredible it was. And then when the the uh, funeral people came, um, instead of them coming in, um, my, the men in the family carried her body out to the hearse. Wow. So, so powerful. Incredible. Yeah. And we had a three, we had a several day funeral and at the wake, um, even at the end, you know, the last night of it, I, I went around with scissors and I was clipping the roses and the flowers off of all of the floral arrangements that everybody had set had sent and gave everybody that was there a flower to cover her with petals and flowers in the casket. Beautiful. It's, you know, I'm actually want to go back to something you said almost offhandedly when you were describing this was that you really researched and how to make it a beautiful experience for all of you, which I think is something that uh, we don't really think about in the dying process or in the grieving process as like as important necessarily. Right. Because it's so stigmatized and so kind of pushed away in our culture, um, you know, that we don't think about that this can be a ritual. And so what you've described mm-hmm. is such a beautiful ritual. And I think we deprive ourselves of that. And especially as things become more and more sterilized and thinking about death is like somehow we need to get it away and out of the house. Like we forget that making this a ritual that is satisfying and beautiful for the people around as well as the person who's passing away is deeply important and not something that you should feel, you know, shame or guilt about like that. Oh, I'm making this an enjoyable experience for myself. What do you, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's almost people feel like they have to steal it because it's not mm-hmm. owed to them. And then instead it's supposed to be a fearful, uptight, you know, co- almost a corporate feeling. You right. know, a lot of funeral homes have that such a stiff corporate, scary feeling. That's all relatively new. If you think back even a hundred years, this wasn't the way funerals were done. It, it, and it, it's, and it's the, in other countries, it's not the way funerals are held. Um, And there is a whole funeral industry, which is really being turned on its head these days with the increase of cremations, um, the outrageous costs. And so I think they're, 
recognizing that they're more, that they need to be more open and receptive to um, and, and the change in um, people's religious um, backgrounds and beliefs that are not, you know, for some people, what was traditional in their family just isn't right anymore. Totally. Uh, I have an interesting thing that I was reading um, earlier about kind of where this turnaround came with, you know, the sterilization of death uh, in Western culture, at least. So this is uh, written by an author in Great Britain describing a little bit about where the change took place in British culture. And they say, they the author says, the corpse had an ambiguous spiritual status. The care it received was thought somehow to influence the future life of the soul. Washing, cleansing, uh, washing, washing and cleansing not only the sweat of death, but the sins of earthly life, a sort of lay, uh, lay of absolution. A woman interviewed in 1980 in a Suffolk village told me the washing is that so you're spotless to meet the Lamb of God. Obviously, this is from a Catholic perspective, but um, a change in attitude towards the corpse had begun to develop towards the end of the 19th century, probably as a result of the public health reformers activities, uh, whereby the older attitude of society of society towards the dead was supplemented, even suppressed by the growing perception that dead bodies were unhygienic. This attitude emphasized the need to ser- uh, segregate the dead away from the living. For extra payment, undertakers began to offer wealthier people new facilities without the taint of public mortuary to store the dead away from their home. A little, one, tiny bit more. One undertaking uh, has estimated that when he, uh, one undertaker has estimated that when he began working in 1936, 90% of bodies would be kept at home between the death and burial. Today, the figure is only about five to ten percent. This significant change is customary behavior reveals something of a revolution in attitude towards the corpse, a new squeamishness, which means that many people accept the physical removal of the dead with relief, indeed seem to require it for their own psychological survival. I thought that was interesting. Our experience as a family was that the process of having her not only die at home, but then to be witness and and involved in the caretaking mm-hmm. of her her of her body um, really enhanced the process of knowing that she had died right. and that it, there wasn't you it's not like you want them back because it was a process and we watched the whole process unfold and we watched the many changes that happened in her in her body as she got you know we were I, I think it's a blessing to have the ability, as long as someone's not in excruciating pain, to be witness to the the dying process rather than a, a sudden death, because it 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 puts closure on it, and it mm-hmm. and 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 the feedback that I got was that it was really very very helpful in the grieving process yeah. to have done everything that we did. We like we really felt like we did everything we did. It's like. It's why I love how you call your counseling bittersweet, Bobby, mm-hmm. bittersweet grief counseling, because mm-hmm. it is, it's bittersweet. It's not, it's not light. It's really intense. It's really deep. Um, but it has this um, heart opening ability that other um, rituals can seem sterile and um, unfulfilling. Exactly. And, you know, I always, uh, as you know, I also worked in hospice. And even now when I talk to people about their family members dying, I tell them in a way that you're accompanying them as far as you can. 
And what you're opening up to us now is the fact that it's it, even beyond their death, you can accompany them to their next journey, to where they go next. Yeah, um, really and I think that's so important. You know, part of what you were saying is that funerals or whatever rituals we create um, are really a way of processing a lot of the tasks of grief. And we've talked on the show before about the different kinds of tasks that there are. You know, the first one being acknowledging the reality. And so there's something so powerful about um, going through the rituals. It helps you accept the reality more. And that's one of the tasks, the most important tasks of grief. And the other one is like, you know, moving towards the pain. And as you're saying, it's a very deep experience. It's a very stirring experience that you, you, we're trying not to um, sterilize. And to as, as Zara, that was such a good point about people's fear of the body. But we're also sterilizing the feelings as well. And so I think when you have these kinds of rituals, it really helps you do that. And then also the, you know, remembering it, remembering the the person who has died is part of how we um, grieve. And so I imagine in all the stories that you were telling over your mom um, as you prepared her and all the, it must have been so tender and so lovely. And that was really moving through. So a lot of the tasks of that we do in our grieving process. So such a rich story. So how did that, where did you take this? How did this, um, where did you take this experience with your mom, which was, you say, in 2013? Um, it allowed, it it got me thinking that there, uh, one piece that happened when we went to the grave site um, was we, we, we chose to go barefoot to the grave site. We, um, mm chose we were singing uh, there's this song tour laura laura which is an italian which is an irish lullaby not an italian an irish lullaby <laughs> that we were singing and the the people from the funeral home were annoyed and they were like trying to get us to stop and really? leave i guess maybe they had another case or i don't know what it was wow. but it was like wow it just didn't feel right. So I started to do research, and that's when I learned. First, I learned of something called the Green Burial Council because it also didn't feel right. Like, why are why embalm a body and pollute the earth and put them in maybe in a $10,000 like box? Yeah, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me. And it seemed, and, and we're running out of space. And, and so I wanted to learn about more. So I, I found this thing called the Green Burial Council, and through a chain, and that and that's about it lists places that offer um, certified green burials, and in order to get certified as a green burial site, there are lots of regulations, um, uh, like the casket. I mean, the body has to be in a um, or uh, in a natural. Uh, uh, either a shroud or a uh, cardboard box or um, wicker uh, or wicker casket, something that's biodegradable. Right. Um, and you can't have even any kind of toxic glue on it. They, and and um, hmm. they don't have tombstones. You, it, it is, um, you could have a marker, like a, a stone or a marker, but it's supposed um to be in a place to preserve also the land so that the land then could not, cannot be developed. So it, it serves that portion, uh, that function as well. Um, and then I 
was introduced, uh, I reached out to a woman named Amy Cunningham, who is a holistic funeral director based in Brooklyn. And her journey was when she was in her 50s and her dad died. She was she was a writer um, in the natural in the uh, the natural and natural movement like about yoga and organic foods and she was a um a new york times writer and uh so when her dad died um she created with her family a beautiful funeral um i think they had a um like a dixie style band like like in, from new orleans yeah and when she came back to New York, because I think it was, it was, I believe it was in South Carolina, uh, she said to her husband, I, I think I want to do this. And so in her 50s, she went to mortuary school. Wow, how fascinating. And um, did went through all the hoops that you had to go through, including learning embalming, even though in her current practice she doesn't do that. And she's now a leader, a beacon of light in this area for uh, non-traditional funerals um, and green burials. And so we connected and we resonated. I even had her come to my house and uh, I had I was running something called wellness salons at that point. And um, she gave a talk on um, cremation and mm-hmm. uh, carbon footprints. And I learned that cremation actually has a higher carbon footprint than wow. me, uh, than um uh, green burials uh, because of uh, it requires very very high temperatures for a prolonged period of time. Right. Um, and so we we became friends, and a little while afterwards, she invited me to attend a uh, a training with a woman named um, Reverend Olivia Barham, who is based in L.A. but came to the East Coast. It was down in Baltimore. Uh, outside of Baltimore, and uh, about 16 of us, and it's women, again, it's mostly, most of these things are women-driven. Yeah. Um, and we spent four days learning how to oversee home funerals. Um, and it was this integration of um, beautiful ritual, and it was, it also addressed different types of rituals, like the in um, Judaism, the, the kinds of rituals and uh, funeral services already are really very pared down and organic mm. in terms of carbon footprint. It's it's a lot less than the ornateness that okay. a, a lot of other people go through. But and that but we learned there's I don't remember the name of it, but there's a particular way of washing the body. There's a certain number of peop of people that are called together to wash the body in a ritualistic manner. It's called the felit. No, I'm sorry. It's called the um I think it starts with a T. And then yeah. you tie you tie the shrouds in different there were certain knots that we had to learn wow. how to That's tie so the shrouds. Um this was the Jewish um, method that you had learned the Jewish history that you had learned? She she was uh, teaching us a bunch of different right. um tools and techniques and um amy lives in brooklyn so her catchment area is generally new york city ish sometimes into westchester but it was only not last fall but the fall 
after uh, last the one before that where yeah. she called me up and said she had a home funeral um so a request on Long Island and would I be interested and it um it so that was my first opportunity and it was um it was, what was your job what did you have to do um well Amy as the funeral director was um overseeing the whole scenario um and she the the person had died in a, a hospital but the family wanted the body to be home with it um with them wow. for a couple of days and they it was could a do small that. Huh. yes it it was a small family there as long as there is a funeral director that's willing to oversee it it is legal mm. in new york state to have home funerals in other states like in baltimore and maryland where we were the women down there were even transporting the bodies wow. like without licensure they could bring the bodies play. I, I, i'm okay with having the, the funeral director transport yeah. the body that's okay with me so she came i was at the house and she i was there with the the daughter and the um the the husband and um when amy and the funeral people came out from brooklyn and the 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 mother was in a the deceased was in a beautiful wicker casket mm. that was placed in the living room and for that family it was a very small private affair um and they just, just didn't want it to be in a hospital and didn't want it to be in a funeral home. What do you think motivated them to choose this? Um, they knew of Amy and mm. they were also um, had families scattered about and they wanted an opportunity. They, they just liked the idea of it being simple and, mm -hmm. and quiet. Mm -hmm. Yes. And um, having they, they actually the um, the deceased stayed in the house for three days, and so my role was to be a support person and to go to the house every day with dry ice and mm. replace the dry ice that the um, deceased was on and check to see that that yeah. things were going right. <laughs> I have a question for you, Mary Beth, just knowing your, you know, your professional background as a healthcare practitioner, especially in women's health and dealing a lot with people uh, who are experiencing, you know, becoming, coming to you and finding out they're pregnant or being with them throughout the, you know, that process and that part of their life and perhaps dealing with finding out that they have an illness, you know, that could be like, like, I'm just, I'm interested in how that connects to your interest in, you know, green funerals and in, in afterlife uh, care and, and being present in this way? Like, do you feel like that there's a connection in between that and seeing kind of the, a very raw look at the living process in general that makes you more, uh, has opened you up to being kind of part of this uh, funeral process. process? I think, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a continuum and I am comfortable nur nurses. I, I'm a nurse. I started at, in my early 20s in the process to become a nurse. Nurses have, since a very young, relatively young age, been exposed to situations, life and death uh, situations, um, 
and are uh, kind of trained and, and um, prepped to manage or be be at peace with and be comfortable and be a support person. And I feel blessed that when I was trained as a, as a nurse, that there was very much a holistic um, emphasis on the importance of being not just present for the physical caring, but also for the emotional, the, the um, psychological, the spiritual caring. And as I've evolved and moved through my own personal spiritual journey and it's integrated with my practice as a, a holistic nurse that um, to me it feels like an enormous blessing to be able to hold these spaces and hold these containers for people to um, bear witness and like some kind of hold someone's hand yeah. to allow them and to help them pull out the strength and the courage and to recognize the amazing opportunity that they could choose to partake and participate in something that has we've been divorced from as a culture yeah. I mean, in the in the it going uh, you know historically living in Huntington the Walt Whitman house that's across from the Walt Whitman mall yeah. has a room in it that he that is a birthing was the birthing and the deathing room so people were born at home they died at home it was part of their lived journey their lived experience and i think um there's a richness to it and an importance to it that we've thrown out that it's time to reclaim and a lot of people are wanting this yeah i Mm. think it's really beautiful bobby you had um Talked about. I know you had done some research on some different kind of um, funeral and death traditions. Do you? Is there anything kind of that you can share with us about some of the research you did this week? Actually, before I do that, I just want to point out. Um, I, you know, as you know, I was in hospice, and I was once introduced to somebody that later became one of my best friends, and she was a midwife. And the person that introduced us uh, was a, a wonderful storyteller, Heather Forrest. And she brought us together under a chuppah because we met at a wedding. And she joined our hands and she said, Bobby, you spend so much time with the dying. Penny, you spend so much time with birthing. You two should should know each other. And she put our hands together. We created the circle together. And um, I, I always thought if it, what you were talking about before is that there's a process in all of that. There's a process in birthing. And... Um, there's times that are so terrifying, right? That are scary. It feels like it's never going to end. And the, 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 the physical experience is so profound. And I think what we do as professionals and what you do as a, as a nurse, and I certainly in my work too, we provide a faith in the process because many people are afraid in the dying process. And I noticed that in, in hospice, that in the beginning, so many people had so much fear. And I felt like my job was to hold the faith in the process. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what I heard you say before, but um, just to answer your questions, are there? I think um, Mary Beth was talking about it before that different cultures have different rituals. And I grew up. Uh, my mom uh, was grew up as an Orthodox Jew, and she had promised my brother. She had promised him that when she died, that he would be able to follow through with the um, Orthodox method because 
um, later in life, she did, wasn't religious. And so there are certainly Jewish traditional um, services which are more like any other service. But the Orthodox service is very specific. And you were describing some of it before. It has to do with shrouds and shawls. And um, there's also somebody that watches the body. You know, it has to watch it from the moment that they die to the moment that they're buried. And they pay people to do that. Sometimes it's family and sometimes it's not. Sometimes they pay what somebody. What is the significance of that? Do we know? I mean, I'm sure. I think they're watching. I believe that they're kind of just watching over the soul yeah. so that it's it cared, it's cared for and tended to, yeah. you know, all the way through the process. And then the other part, thing about the Jewish service is that the family members are the ones that um, put the earth on on. On, on the casket. So they themselves are the ones that take handfuls of dirt and throw it onto the casket so that they're part of the process. But, you know, I did research a lot of different cultures, but I'm also more curious to hear, did you, did you do any more of this um, home funerals? Do you have any other experiences? I, I did. I did one more about two weeks after the first one, which it's so unusual for that to, you know, but clumped together like that was amazing. Amy called me again and there was another family that was preparing for a home funeral. They would call her in advance and, you know, and, and so we were waiting um, for um, another a matriarch of the family to die. And this one was just the um, on the other end of the spectrum from the first one, which was very quiet and private. This was an incredibly loving, large, um, blended Japanese-American family um, that owns a, um, this, the, the matriarch who passed owned a um, restaurant locally in our town and um, had uh, two daughters and, and a son and all of their extended family that really took took great went to great lengths to provide an unbelievably unbelievably incredibly beautiful experience uh they had um purchased a simple coffin from uh, a pine box but it was carved um that they had already so they put that together and they um and she was at home when she passed so they um set up the coffin next to her and dressed her in um a kimono and um one of the feet, one of the things that happened is the the matriarch had been ill for a really long time and had parkinsons and had different Ill, uh, neurological illnesses that caused her always to have a, a like her face was kind of scrunched and unhappy looking. Mm. I didn't see that because I mm. only saw her when she, after she had passed, but everybody kept commenting on how beautiful and serene her face looked and how much of a contrast it was from what they had been witnessing during the, the time of her illness. Um, and, and it wasn't they, embalming. It was no, at home on ice on the dry mm. ice and um, they they um put beautiful navy blue fabric that had uh like chrysanthemum print 
all around the periphery of the of the casket and filled it with boughs of flowers and one of the daughters is a florist and um they had um incense burning and somebody who sat next to her praying um one of just going going back and reflecting bobby um the my experience is and i you know I, it, this is just the, the ones that i've been present for is that people really know that this is like the last this is your last visit with mm. this this body mm-hmm. and i think there's a great motivation to just sit with it mm-hmm. even if that's somebody was present with her for that whole time mm-hmm. uh, yes. and that was a, another 3 day mm. event where they um stayed with her uh, and and they had a big um it was open to family friends that so a lot and they had a ceremony at the house and it was just exquisite and accompanying her on the process i want to just mention a counterpoint which is that i obviously am and maybe not obviously but i am in alignment with everything we're talking about right and the thought of being able to have this kind of ceremony and ritual is so appealing to me in uh in in some kind in in a way but I uh when my dad died he died in the hospital and I was alone I had no support with me I'm an only child he didn't have anyone else like and my dad died in the hospital and I went in and there was a sheet over his body and I they didn't even tell me that I, he was, they said he wasn't going to be in there and he'd already been moved. And I, I went in and there was a sheet over his body and his arm was hanging out and I was terrified and I walked out and that was the last time I ever saw him. So while like we're talking about this stuff and perhaps even some of our listeners are listening to this and they're like, God, this sounds so amazing, but I didn't do that, you know? And like, even thinking about this, I'm having all this regret and thinking, oh, I didn't do this, but this is where my heart is. This is the kind of person I am. This is what I would have wanted to do. I just want to offer something to other people who might be listening to this and feeling guilt or some kind of shame around not doing something like this and reminding you that like being able to plan something like this also requires support. And a lot of people lose people when they're all alone, like myself, for instance, like Mm -hmm. I had zero support and, and I'm sure a lot of other people are in the same boat and like you kind of are just like, okay, this thing is happening now, this thing is happening now, this thing is happening. So I just want to quickly acknowledge that being able to have a ceremony like this, which is so gorgeous and so ideal and so wonderful. And Mary Beth, the work you're doing in this capacity you've done in the past is so beautiful. And Bobby, as a hospice nurse, it's so beautiful. But I just wanted to offer a little space for people who, even when someone isn't just ripped away suddenly, even when it, my dad was sick for 10 years, you know what I mean? So it wasn't a surprise, but there, it still can happen so quick. And if you don't have the support, you can, you know, you might not have the opportunity. Absolutely. I love that you always bring in that, the, the other way of looking at something. And you're so right, Sarah. My, the words in my mind was support, but it's not just family support. It's also the system. And I'm so glad to hear that the system is changing Yeah, because, totally. um, you know, I'm also going to add, I had a similar experience, not similar, but a very devastating experience when my mother was buried. Devastating. And part of the reason was because we weren't all on the same page. Mm. You know, again, my brother, you know, rest his soul, 
uh, was orthodox and had very rigid prescribed ways of how it to be done. And I, I had so much spirit inside when she died, and I really wanted to bring that spirit to the table. There was no room. There was no room. So some families, you know, are very structured, and and um, there's no room for people that want to express themselves in the family. So or I think it just you brought up a really so good quickly. point. Sometimes it can it just happen so quickly, so quickly absolutely. even when it doesn't yep. happen quickly. And like, you mm. know, part of the thing that is unspoken here, but we have to acknowledge, I think, is that because of the, you know, capitalist society that we live in, the death industry is an industry like every other industry. And it's designed to get you to move quickly in this specific way. And then you move to this thing, you move to this thing. So it's a wonderful counter alternative it's a wonderful alternative that we're talking about today to be able to like, illuminate people to the fact that you know a this exists i feel like for a lot of folks i'm glad we're doing this with you mary beth because i feel like a lot of folks aren't even aware that this is an option and and Thank when you. they're aware that's an option there's a there's a kind of a learning curve almost and being like oh this is an option like could i could I do this? You know what I mean? Could I? But remember one other important thing. What about the person who died? They have very often the the person who's dying. We started. We're starting to ask them, "What do you want? Do you right. what kind of things do you have in mind?" Sometimes they plan their own rituals and ceremonies, right, and right. they're part of it too. Mm. Yeah. So it's a very interesting kind of thing. But I think the thing that like is a really like the biggest point that we can grasp onto here is remembering that death does not have to be sickness to hospital, to casket, to funeral home, to embalming fluid. It can be. It certainly can be if that's something that you and your family and your loved one wants, who amongst us are to say that's wrong, but it certainly doesn't have to be. And I think the earlier we can kind of get on the, on the page of being like, wow, I could sit with my de- the body of my loved one in my home for a couple of days and take that in and process that I could create ritual around that. That's something that is normal and natural. Like, you know, how would that feel for me and start thinking about it? I wish I had thought about that earlier, for honestly. I wish I had com- made myself comfortable with that thought because I would have loved to have the opportunity to have a, ri- have a ritual around my dad's death and to see his body and to, and I, because of, the society we live in, it didn't ever even occur to me. I didn't even want to go there. And I'm, and I am someone who is clearly willing to go there, you know? And so yes. even for me, it was hard. So I hope, I'm really glad that we're having this talk so that people can kind Well, of it's empowering. What we're talking about is this conversation is. is hopefully right. empowering people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with the dying or the immediate death of a person. Sometimes it's in the way we honor that they're passing afterwards. So mm. whether it's the way, if with your dad's death, I remember I came down after he died, and we together, in a very sacred space, created rituals that I imagine we never dreamed we would have done. Yeah, it was yeah. in the moment we just both were inspired and we supported each other in it. And so it it doesn't. Sometimes you don't have the opportunity when somebody dies in a hospital, and you really have to fit in with the system and the rules and regulations. But I guess this conversation is to um, empower everyone to try to let their spirit come through, even if it's opening the window. You know, I had learned right after my mom died, somebody reminded me that after somebody dies, you open the window. And I did it when she died. It was so 
special to me, just in the hospital, the terrible way she died in an emergency room. It was a horrible death. But opening the window, I just felt like her spirit went out the window and it was just, it was a little teeny moment. So it wasn't the beautiful things that Mary Beth was describing, but for me in that little moment. So we can find those little moments. I think it's also important to contextualize this, that we're in, we're maybe, maybe at the kind of end, but we're in a like in a pandemic right now Mm. and COVID has totally flipped the switch in terms of how Mm. people are, have been able to be and not be present with their, with their um, loved ones in in death. And, and there's been Mm. a lot of um, creativity around that in uh, that people that are interested in, and in enriching the, the process have come up with of new ways of honoring um, in a very challenging time. Yeah. Uh, and, and it, you know, it may, a lot of people have had that experience recently where they were not able to be present um, even as the person was dying and the, and the whole forget about the, the funerals have been exactly, exactly. shifted. So there can be, more creative ways of, but it is about going inside and, and like do figuring what, what bring, what could bring us meaning and, and how can we uh, as a family or even as an individual um, honor this person's legacy. I was, I was thinking of the Rolling Stones. I was thinking about, you don't always get what you want. Sometimes you, but you try to get what you need, you know? Yeah, and that so, was my dad. That is how De- John taught me huh. about music. I remember I was a little kid and he was like, I must have been eight. And he was like, well, this is going to be your biggest life lesson. And he put on that song and <laughs> I I read it at his, at his funeral. Guys, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about some different funeral food traditions from around the world. This episode is brought to you by Forever Cheese. Forever Cheese has been a pioneer in the specialty food industry for over 20 years. They source the most exceptional, authentic, and creative artisan cheese and accompaniments from Italy, Spain, Portugal, and Croatia. Every product they carry is thoughtfully hand-selected from their trusted producers in Europe. The standards of Forever Cheese are legendary. Many of their products, including Drunken Goat, Genuine Fulvi Pecorino Romano, Mitica Marcona almonds, and fig and date cakes are now integral to today's market. You can learn more about their product lineup at forevercheese.com. Forever Cheese is proud of their role as a trusted authority in the specialty cheese world. Their philosophy is to put passion behind everything they do, from finding the best products to celebrating those who make them. Forever Cheese, a passion for great taste. Thanks to Forever Cheese for supporting this episode. Learn more at forevercheese.com. All right, so we're back with Mary Beth White. And guys, I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about, uh, for the food kind of element of the show, and since we were talking about funerals, I was interested to kind of research some different food traditions from around the globe um, that people do when, when they're kind of, 
I don't know. I want to say celebrating a funeral. I know that's a weird way of putting it, but it's just what popped into my head. And I think in a way, as we learned from Mary Beth, it really can be a celebration. So I'm just going to mention a couple and we can kind of talk through them. But in Mexico, um, translating to bread of the dead, this they have sweet rolls. Oh, I want to mention, I got most of this information from uh, an article in the Daily Meal. Um, so to celebrate the Day of the Dead, they make these rolls um, that are baked in Mexico for the Day of the Dead festival in November when Mexicans um, commemorate their loved ones. The soft, sweet bread rolls can vary according to uh, regional recipes and are sometimes shaped like animals or people with colorful decorations. So they make these gorgeous, beautiful rolls and they're decorated like the loved ones. And mm. I think, I mean, I'd love to... Um, do a whole episode kind of about the Day of the Dead because what an incredible... I think you should. Yeah, what an incredible celebration. Um, this is a really beautiful one. In Japan, Japanese Buddhists hold a memorial festival called Oban, where spirits of loved ones are thought to visit from the afterlife. Families often make food offerings to their ancestors on the Buddhist altars in their homes. One custom is to carve or model a cucumber to represent the shape of a horse, known as the uh, Koyuri Uma. Families leave these on their loved one's graves to help them return to the afterlife when Oban ends. Eggplants often represent cows, known as Nasu Ushi. Mm. Yeah, that was a cool one. Um, Mormons, as many of us know, have a tradition of funeral potatoes, as our, our mutual friend and former guest on this show, Kathy Bodily, has told us about in, in Utah and you know, Mormons outside of Utah, but uh, often bring, well, always, I think, bring funeral potatoes, which is some kind of potato casserole. Do you guys know anything about this? I just know that it's, they talk about it all the time. Right. It's just so, like a really, funeral it's as common potatoes, as the potato, right? It's a, it's, it's a very common. Mormon funeral potatoes are traditional casserole commonly served after a funeral, um, the all-American dish involves cubed potatoes, cheese, onions, cream sauce, and is topped with cornflakes or potato chips, oh. which is kind of the the signature oh. thing that makes some funeral potatoes. But yeah, um, this one I also really, really, really loved. In Korea, food is a significant part of Korean funerals. During the ritual, the person who has died is offered bowls of rice and three spoonfuls are placed inside their mouth. For those attending the funeral and paying their respects, traditional Korean dishes like uh, yuka jjang are served. Yuka jjang is a spicy beef soup containing scallions, bean sprouts, garlic, sweet potatoes, and chili. It's a traditional dish that is often served at funerals with a bowl of rice and kimchi. Um, Mary Beth, I don't know if you know about this, but have you heard of Irish wake cake? I do not. (laughs) Apparently in Ireland, know. yeah, apparently in Ireland, they always have something called Irish wake cake. Um, from what <laughs> I've read, and this makes sense, just what we know sometimes happens uh, in at Irish funerals is there's a lot of drinking. I think this food is specifically <laughs> um, made to soak up some of the alcohol, <laughs> as this is what I've read in articles. I don't want to, um, I don't want to create too much of a stigma around Irish funerals, but um in Estonia, after the last shovel is dirt hits the, after the last shovel of dirt hits the coffin, the mourning family serves up pastries, bread, and vodka at the gravesite. Anything left over is abandoned at the cemetery. To bring it oh. home would only invite more death into the house. Later that day, more substantial funeral feast is served at the home of the deceased, including 
cabbage rolls always bobby so stuffed cabbage which is mm-hmm. traditional food mm-hmm. in our family growing up mm-hmm. um in in great britain they uh bury people with a ham and they call it being buried with a ham so a lot of people have been buried they bury people with foods and ham is a very traditional thing to be buried with that's an interesting choice i know ham <laughs> Um, in Hawaii, <laughs> centuries ago, Hawaiians were customarily wrapped in banana, taro, and mulberry leaves before being buried near the community dining room. Uh, before being buried near the community dining room, uh, earmarked for men. A lao lao is a popular item in Hawaiian funeral feasts. It's a serving of spicy pork, chicken, or vegetables wrapped in taro leaves and then steamed or prepared in a pressure cooker. And it's often used uh, with filled with spam. Um, spam. Well, yeah, they spam is very popular in Hawaii right. in Hawaiian culture. Right. Like oh, it's, that's it's right. yeah. very, very like it's ubiquitous to Hawaiian culture. Spam is is everywhere. Wow. In Hawaii. Wow. Um, in Romania, after a relative dies, Romanian families prepare enough loaves of ring shaped bread named kolachi uh, to accompany the coffin in a proces- in a procession from the home to the church to the graveyard at the cemetery. Relatives pass the kolachi a black hen, a candle, a crock of water, and a chunk of salt back and forth over the open grave. Afterward, they are placed nearby as payment for the grave digger. Mm. And then I have one more. Uh, In Vietnam, uh, food plays a big role in the funeral. To prepare the deceased for their journey at the wake, the mouth is kept open so the visitors can drop grains of rice in. Mm. Mourners bring a bowl of rice to place on top of the coffin so that by the end of the wake, there will be so much weight on top that the devil will not be able to get into the coffin. On the 49th and 100th day after the death, the family gathers to remember the deceased with a special meal. Bun Ho often fits the bill. Wow. So those are a couple of really interesting and beautiful rituals surrounding death involving food. And some based on, I don't even want to use the word superstition because I don't mean that exactly, but you know, the beliefs that cultures have about what happens when we die, because nobody knows. So yeah, we've no. created, we've created all kinds of stories of what, you know, what we believe. And so some of the, it's so interesting that some of these things fit right into their belief system about what happens after somebody dies and they tie the food in. It's really incredible. And I think superstition has a negative connotation to it, but really, I mean, what, what, who cares? If you have a superstition, if you have a belief in something that we can't see, I mean, you know, religion could be looked at as superstition. It's all about it's based on the unknown, unknown yeah. and your idea and your family or your culture's idea of, you know, what makes sense to you and believing in something we can't see. I think we have to all kind of respect that. I think to destigmatize superstition is important. Actually, you, you know, your point is so well taken because that's exactly what we've been talking about today, really, is that the deep beliefs that we have, we're trying to figure out the meaning of life and death, you know, all of us to some extent, certainly when somebody dies. And we have to trust some of the beliefs that we have that make sense to us. And sometimes we can do them individually because families don't want to join us. But sometimes we can engage, as you did, Mary Beth, you engaged your family in certain beliefs and feelings that you had. And you invited them to join you, and it, it felt so comfortable for them. But for yeah. those where it, where it's not comfortable for the family, do it anyway. Find ways to. I remember at my again my mother's um, burial. Um, I had my own little secret little things that I didn't share with anybody else. I did my own rituals because they didn't yeah. fit in with the formal rituals of the family. I just yes. did it on my own, 
and I didn't care. No one was going to stop me, but I didn't have to push it on anybody. Well, also, here's the thing, right? That these are for these rituals um, are largely for the living. And I think we kind of started out saying this, Mary Beth, when you were talking about making this an enjoyable and special experience for, you know, everybody. And I think like, you know, if we're going to go ahead and, and say, look at the tradition of putting, you know, rice in, in someone's mouth so that they're fed or whatever the whatever that may be in any different culture, like we don't know. Right. We do know that that person is, doesn't have a voice and whether or not that's helpful. And we're actually not sure about whether any of these things will help them in the afterlife. But we do know is it's it's satisfying our soul. It's feeding our soul. It's feeding our our image of what may or may not happen to this person after they die. And it's important for someone who's still living their life to feel in some way that they've, they've put this person they cared about on their best path into whatever may be, you know, and it's Honorable important passage, yeah. to us. So mm-hmm. while it may seem as like, you know, we're covering the dead in a shroud or we're putting this many scoops of dirt on the grave or we leave this so that they're not hungry when they go or we open the window or we close the window. You know, it's really like about us. And for instance, to go back to what I was talking about about myself, about not being able to do that for my dad and feeling guilty. Like I, you know, like he's in my mind either way, you know what I mean? Kind of the same. And I, since I didn't get it then and a lot of people who didn't get it then or even who did get to do things, but have regret, you can still, you can still do this just as grief is kind of a lifelong process. So is the ritual surrounding letting go. Never, and never it too late. Never to too be, late. It doesn't have to be confined to this specific mm-hmm. time. You can, you can do this at any time if you want, because it's really about you. It's a good I'd like, point. I'd like to just um, intersect something that feels appropriate to say at this point where um, especially having been a hospice nurse that and talking about how a lot of the things that we do are for us and um, not the dying person or the the person who's deceased, that, that one of the things that families struggle with so much at the very end is the, the fact that the person who is in the act of dying process is withdrawn and is no longer taking in food, no longer eating. And that's a re- that can become very conflictual and very traumatic for families because it's they often don't don't know what their role is. If they're not able to feed a person or give the person something to drink, like what what's important? And it's part of the role of, of somebody who's a hospice nurse um, or a doula or somebody who's aware of the, the process is to educate the family that it's, in, it's part of the process. And the less fluids and food that the person takes in at the end, the easier it is because they don't have the, um, they won't have as liquidy cough. They'll, yeah. um, they are, are, there's actually, um, endorphins that are released through the, um, through the process of, of not having food. And, um, so it's important to reframe that, that what is important is the presence of the person being with the person who's passing and knowing that they're here, that they still potentially might hear that that could be the last sense that, that goes 
And so telling them they love them and, 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 and thanking them and it is as important as giving them food and drink. And, and it's such a struggle for some families and it can cause, it can cause people to choke and, and make it a lot People feel like eat, eat for me, you know, eat for me, stay here for me. And that's a moment where you realize you let go for them. That's a really, really, really great point, Mary Beth. And it's almost like moms sometimes talk about this, especially in the kind of codependent nature of, you know, family members, which is not always a negative thing, but I'm cold. Why don't you put on a coat kind of thing? And maybe it's a good, it's an interesting kind of point to think about like, oh, I really want to feed this person because, you know, it's what I feel like I can do to be useful. And maybe to redirect that and not to say that you can always eat if you're upset, but maybe if you're with a dying loved one and you want to feed them or give them water, but they don't actually want it. Or as you're saying, Mary Beth, not helpful for them. Maybe you need to drink some water. Maybe you need to <laughs> eat something and, and see how that feels to redirect that energy towards yourself. If you're also not in a place where you're feeling like eating and drinking, because I know for myself when I'm upset sometimes, I, it's the last thing I want. But what is the thing you can maybe give to yourself that would feel nourishing? If that's your compulsion and it's not good for the other person, how do you give that maybe to yourself or someone else in your family, you know, a point. not dying person? You know, I think that actually, you know, the, the whole process of watching and helping somebody die in their journey and the, the burial, it's really for both. It's it, go, it goes back and forth, and you have to kind of notice that subtle difference between when it's for them and when it's for you. And, and I think even many people feel that the services they provide are for them, for, for the dying, to let their soul, as I was saying before, to take care of their soul as it leaves, you know. So it's a back and forth. Um, I feel like this conversation could go on. I think we should have another uh, a part two discussion. Yes. I love um, that. I I wanted to bring up something. And I'm not going to discuss it now, but just put it out there for anybody that's really interested in the subject. HBO about a year and a half, two years ago, did a documentary called Alternative Endings: Six New Ways to Die in America. It was wonderful. I remember I being blown away. And they talked about different ways that family members, um, unique ways like a sea burial. And somebody had a space burial where they sent the ashes off to space. Um, they talked about green burials. They also talked about people that um, assisted suicide. And I don't even like to use that word. They use, actually called it medical aid in dying, which is a much better way. And they talked about celebrations of life where you have the celebrations similar in Dick Johnson is Dead, the uh, movie oh, that we yeah. discussed, yes. where you have yes. this, the celebration that. of life before, you know. So um, there's so much to talk about here. Mary Beth, we love you so much. And this has been oh such a joy. What a it's pleasure. Been so good. I have two books I want to recommend actually too, based on some of the things I talked about. There's a book called Being Dead is No Excuse, which is incredible. <laughs> That's um, a good title. It is. Hang on. I just want to look up the author quickly. Um, it is. It's about like, it's by Gaydon Metcalf. Um it is. It's great. It was recommended uh, in the HRN studios, actually, by the incoming, uh, I, I forget her name, but the incoming editor-in-chief of Savor Magazine was going to be interviewed by someone on HRN, and then we were going in next, and she mentioned it, and I bought it, and it's incredible. Um, and then the other book that I want to recommend, where I got some of this information for, for my little segment, is called uh, Death Warmed Over. Uh, by Lisa Rogak, and it is about death, uh, death, food celebrations, and culture. How different cultures around the world celebrate death through food. Those are two kind of. 
Wow. Mary Beth, is there anything about the, um, the, the, um, anything that you would like to share with people in terms of how they can find out more about, um, um, I would recommend the, the green burial council and also, um, Amy Cunningham's website, fitting tribute. I, I, I think, no, I think it's called the inspired funeral.com. Okay. We'll put a link um, to it. We'll has lots of information about how to create, um, services and rituals and memorials. Great. Great. And I found it. something called funeralwise.com, which had an amazing amount of information about this. I would strongly advise that as well. Um, we have a special ritual that we do on processing. And we like to think that uh, we've had meals with you, shared wonderful meals with you before. <laughs> but right now, this has been such a, a lovely, warm connection. And we'd like to think if we could sit down to a meal right now, what would we each bring? So that we could kind of visualize our our celebration together. So... Anybody right. have any ideas? Um, right this minute? Yeah. Well, if we're like, let's say later today we're going to have dinner and it was summertime and we we're at Bobby's backyard. <laughs> As does, we it have to be, do. does it have to be summertime? Can I bring no. Bobby's soup? Because <gasps> Bobby's soup. Bobby! Another person mentioning your soup. That must be it. It's good. Nourished me through a lot oh. lately. It's, it's just, oh. it's. To know when it's in my refrigerator just makes me very happy. Oh, that's so sweet, Mary Beth. <laughs> it's my vegetable so soup that I have bestowed on you many times. With because Zara and I talk about what it's like when somebody you love and somebody you care about is hurting, and you want. And for those of us that food is one way we express ourselves, every time I yes. know you're going through something, I just want to do something, and so I bring you minestrone soup. <laughs> Okay, so we I'll have some minestrone ba- soup. I'll bring a baguette from Caputo's because Caputo's Bakery in my neighborhood recently started making baguettes, and they make great Italian bread, and I would have never thought they're baguettes. I mean, it's baguette and Italian bread. They're, you know, very different things. They make the most delicious baguettes I've ever had outside of France. And so I would bring some Caputo's baguettes and some Kerrygold butter to, like, slather mm. on and then dunk in the soup. Yeah, and I'm going to bring one piece of brownie that I have in my freezer that Zara made me for Mother's Day. It was a dark cocoa peanut butter swirl brownie. And I gave some to Kathy. We shared, we had a little tea party and I took one piece and I put it in the freezer. So it's enough for the three of us to share. So that's a meal. Okay. That sounds great. I can't wait. Um, Mary Beth, this was really beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us. What a cool, wonderful, fun, great (laughs) thing. Um, You're such a, like, as I started off by saying, but just, you know, when we think about community, which I think is, you know, becoming more and more scarce, unfortunately, but hopefully maybe we can turn a corner after, you know, the year and a half that we've had with realizing how important community is. But in our community, which I feel very lucky that we have, you are just such an important pillar in it and such a healer and a wise human and a interesting human. And, and someone who I also will say, and, and Dan uh, is much like you in this way, is that you're constantly learning and, and learning new things and educating yourself about different kind of interesting things in your field and beyond and this is a beautiful way to learn a beautiful new thing to have learned about and thank you so much for sharing it with us and our listeners it's really really cool i'll reflect that back and and 
in dis- and how you and and your mom have turned a crisis of uh, this whole pandemic into this ability to build a community through a forum that is um, we're all getting more and more used to these Zoom meetings, but I really feel you set the stage for just deepening the connection with some and expanding it, your love out. Uh, Thank you for inviting Mm -hmm. me. It's my pleasure. And one more special thank you. Thank you for having the best kid in the world, two of the (laughs) best kids, but particularly Dan, who is my best friend and happy birthday to you too, because when it's your kid's birthday, it's also your birthday and they are a spectacular person. Dan, if you're listening, we all love you so much. Happy birthday. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Happy right. birthday, Mom and Dan. We'll I'll come back again soon. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.